0: Well, if I could begin by playing a little word association with you tonight, I will say the name of a piece of well-known art or invention, and I'd just like you to simply think of the inventor or artist. I don't think it will be too difficult. Um, if I said Mona Lisa, I'm assuming you'd think Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. If I said the telephone, think of Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, the airplane, Wright Brothers, right? And the cars became a little more difficult, the automobile. If I said Ford Motor Company, you'd think Henry Ford, but as I'm looking at it, they are saying that in 1885, Carl Frederick Benz, Mercedes Benz, I guess, was the first true gasoline-powered automobile. But there's word association, relationships between the inventor or the the person involved in starting a company. Standard Oil Company, John D. Rockefeller, famous person. Uh, The Renaissance Sculpture of David, Michelangelo. And the incandescent light bulb, at least the commercial, first commercialized, I've been told, Thomas Edison. Well, we, we use these things today, or we respect the art of inventors and artists, and it's, it's, it's if they are able to step into our world, even though it may be separated by hundreds of years. There's a relationship, an insufferable relationship between the, what's invented and the inventor, the, the creator and what has been created. The, the creator is memorialized through creation that person's creation and we get to experience that today well as we consider the drama of redemption it should not be a surprise to us that god the mover of history has deemed to underline his redemptive work in christ through living historical portraits and pictures pictures that reinforce to his people the relationship between redeemer and his redemptive work and that's what we see throughout the old testament living, moving, breathing portraits and pictures. They are historical, objective, and yet they are meant to point us to God as our Redeemer and God's redemption plan. Well, as we've been studying in this series, the drama of redemption, some key passages that we've put our focus on would include Luke 24, 25 through 27, and I have the text there for you on your handout. Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, "'O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself.'" all of scripture the things concerning himself in Luke 24:32 the the disciples on the road to Emmaus Christ is left and they they say to one another did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures there's something for believers when we we see Christ in scripture yeah it's one thing if somebody came to me and they they wanted to show me the uh pictures of their family history and uh you know, for a while, you're kind of excited and encouraged, but after a while, your brain starts going, oh, well, I don't really connect here with, with your family history. I appreciate the love, but uh, it's been an hour now. <laughs> I need to move on. And we get excited about our family history, but if I'm disconnected from that, that excitement wanes. It may only be there for a little bit. Well, when we read the this, the, the life of David and Saul, as, as uh, we did this, this Sunday morning, we may think, well, why are we studying someone else's history? But when Jesus connects that history to himself and then says that we are connected to Jesus Christ, we realize that we're part of this redemptive plan and our hearts burn within us. This is our family. We've been adopted into the the family of God through Jesus Christ. This Old Testament history is our history because we are in Christ. And the Old Testament testifies of Christ. So Christ... As the center of Scripture, the interpretation of Scripture stirs our hearts. But we also note in Luke 24, one of the key passages that we've looked at together is that Christ placed himself at the center of Scripture as the fulfillment of Scripture. In Luke 24, 44 through 47, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Christ, pointing to the law, the Psalms, the prophets, gathering up all the uh, di- the three divisions of the Old Testament, and says they center upon me, I'm the fulfillment. And he opens their minds to see Christ and to understand, particularly that he'd be raised the third day, that he would provide repentance and forgiveness of sins through his work on the cross. Paul, no doubt, understands this theme, that Christ is the central theme of the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, Paul says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he says, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, we weren't vacillating." This The promises that we're proclaiming in Christ are not up for debate. It's not negotiable. They're not yes and no. But in Him, it is always yes. And then he says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God, Old Testament, New Testament, all God's promises find their yes in him in Jesus Christ. And then he says, that is why through Him, through Christ, we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So God has prom- made all these promises throughout scripture. And they are God's Yes in Jesus Christ. And as we come to Christ and embrace Him through faith, we utter an, an Amen. A let it be through the work of Christ back to God for His glory. So the promises of all of scripture centered on Jesus Christ and when we agree with God about his son we give him great glory. In 2 Corinthians 3:14 through 18 that may be worth going there 2 Corinthians 3:14 through 18 in setting the stage for our study. Paul is describing the unbeliever as they looked at the law of Moses, but they looked at the law of Moses as with a veil. They could not see the glory of Christ, the portrayals of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And he says, verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for to this day... I think we'd include the Pharisees, the Judaizers, those who've rejected Christ. When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul underlines that apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the new covenant, the work of Christ, the the unbeliever will continue to look at the Old Testament Scriptures, the law of Moses, with a veil. They're not able to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Their hearts are not stirred. Their minds are not opened. It will take the work of the Holy Spirit to open their minds, their hearts, and to show Christ. The Holy Spirit then gives, if you will, a new covenant lens. I think that's what Abraham and Moses had, if you will. Um maybe in seed form but we're told in Hebrews 11 that Moses saw the riches of Christ as greater than the treasures of Egypt the Hebrew writer says Christ Moses saw the treasures the glory of Christ the Messiah the anointed one the expected one the promised one greater than the riches of Egypt how do they have that insight through the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit and we, as New Testament believers, have this New Testament lens to join Abraham and Moses and to see the glories of Christ as they were unveiled in the Old Testament. First 1 Corinthians 10.11 gives us a pattern for how the Holy Spirit has pointed to Christ in the Old Testament. First 1 Corinthians 10.11, not only does he lay out the uh, an interpretive grid called types or portrayals or examples, but he's given us an example of what that looks like. First Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them as a, this is a tupas or typos. Um, it's the oo sound in the Greek, but it comes across in English with the Y. Um, we don't, the Greek didn't have the Y. So we, we, we translate this as type or as it comes across in English as an example. It came as a type, an example, a portrayal. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So believers are then invited to look at God's work, redemptive work in the Old Testament, as a portrayal pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, where do you get Christ in this? Well, that's 10, 1 through 4. He gives us an example of how these types operate. They're again historical. God is moving through history and the people of Israel, and yet using it to paint portrayals of His Son. 10 verse 1, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. It doesn't say the rock was like Christ. The rock was Christ. You say, well, how does that work? Well, that's where he introduces the type. It's a historical event, object. It could be a person, an animal, as in the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. It's historical. It's objective. And yet God has interpreted it to point forward to Jesus Christ. So just as the rock provided for them, Christ provided for them. You could say Christ standing there before the rock was providing for them. Some way there's a connection between the rock and Christ. You shouldn't have your mind whirling a little bit. Why was the rock to be hit once? And when Moses hit it twice, why was he prevented from entering the promised land? Hmm, I'll let your mind just whirl. But I think you'd be moving in the right direction if you go, he was to be, was to be uh, accomplished once, redemptive work, not to be repeated again. And if he is a, the rock becomes a type, it was to be treated as a type of Christ. Well, this is an example that Paul gives of how types operate. I want to now begin to move into the Old Testament. On the bottom of page 1 of your notes, we're going to look at Hebrews 9. So we've seen how types operate. We've seen that the Holy Spirit uses these types to point us to Jesus Christ. And I'd like to dig into that statement a little bit more. How does the Holy Spirit use these Old Testament sacred spaces and holy places to point us to Christ. And this becomes very helpful in our interpretation of uh, the tabernacle, particularly. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24, we're going to kind of back into the, the text a little bit. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24, he's talking about the tabernacle, and the temple sacrifices, the, the holy place. Verse 23, he says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And we'll look at a a picture of a tabernacle here pretty soon, but the tabernacle had three divisions. It had an outer court, then it had uh, the, the holy place, and then a veil, and the holy of holies. So three sections, and that's why the Hebrew writer uses the plural, holy places. Not describing the outer court, but describing the two rooms within this tent. Now he says in verse 23 that these holy places, that would be the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be located, and the holy place. He uses the plural, but he applies it to copies of the heavenly things in verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. So what we're told from this text is that this tent, divided into two divisions, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, are meant to be a portrayal, a symbolic portrayal of heaven. We'll dig into that a little bit more. But again, keep in your mind, they are copies pointing us forward, pointing us upwards, if you will. In Hebrews chapter 9, well, before you go to the beginning of chapter 9, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So the, the law, the law of Moses, was meant to be a shadow or a copy of the heavenly realities. Remember I used the analogy of an inventor coming through an invention? Well, our Creator has given us portrayals in history, pictures, types, that point us forward to heavenly realities. Realities, reminders to us. They grip our hearts with what God has done in an ultimate sense in salvation. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 3. He uses the term pattern. 9, 1 through 3. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. That's what the Hebrew writer, verse 23, called the Holy Places and said there are pictures of heavenly things. So both of these compartments, the Holy Place and the the Most Holy Place, represent the heavenly places. Verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. He went, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood, thus occurring in eternal redemption. So now what he's, what he's arguing is that the, the, the tent that Christ appeared in is a greater, more perfect tent. It's not made of create, it's not of creation. It's not the, the, the earthly tent. And then he talks about this, heavenly perfect tent as holy places in verse 12 he entered once for all into the holy places again these are shadows portrayals that point us forward to god's redemptive activity in heaven and on earth with that in mind then we're going to step back and look at the garden of eden as a portrayal of god's presence among his people in a temple And then we'll step into the tabernacle and we'll look there and ultimately be amazed by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would join me in, in great, great praise. I want to pray, if you wouldn't mind. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart by your Spirit to look through the lens of the New Testament, as the Hebrew writer says, for it's the Holy Spirit who intended, Hebrews 9 tells us, to point to these heavenly realities through the copies. And so we would ask that by your Spirit, that you might open our eyes to see the, the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and, and be amazed at what you have done in condescending to us in the wilderness, in the outer courts, to redeem us and to save us, to draw us into your presence boldly and with confidence that we may approach a throne of grace and not of judgment. So we pray that you would stir our hearts as our minds are open to consider Christ. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are going to look, you're on page two now, at two portraits, two temple portraits of Christ in the Old Testament that portray the glory of Christ and the new covenant to believers. We've argued that Abraham and Moses had this uh, spirit-given perspective. That's why John 8 can say, uh, Jesus can say that Abraham saw his day and was glad. Moses, in Hebrews 11, saw the treasures of Christ more precious than the treasures of Egypt. Well, these two temple portrayals are just going to follow the two um, law covenants, if we call them that. We talked about redemptive covenants. Pastor Pat led us through those. Well, there are two, if you will, law covenants. The Adamic covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat it, you will die. And it's also then republicized in the Mosaic covenant called to obey the Word of God in order to enter rest. And as we have um, taken the time to study, Christ himself is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled uh, what, what Adam was required to fulfill for our righteousness. He fulfilled the law. And through faith, that is credited to our accounts so that we can enter the rest. We can en- enter the presence of God. So each of these uh, temple portraits, Garden of Eden... And the tabernacle and temple all point forward to end the, uh, what it means to enter God's presence and what it meant to be barred out of God's presence and the radical nature of Christ's work to redeem us. So we're going to look at the Edenic portrayal. It's going to give us an overarching portrait of Christ and then we'll look at the tabernacle, and we'll see more of the detailed exposure to Christ's redemptive work as our high priest. But even looking at the character of the Garden of Eden, we're going to lay out the tabernacle and compare them. And I hope that enriches our study of um, Eden as the temple of God and Adam as a priest. Well, the First portrait, Eden, Adam, and Christ. If I could build it off of this text, Romans 5.14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now we look through the Holy Spirit's New Testament lens, and we're explicitly told that Adam served as a type. He was a prophetic portrayal of Christ. And God intended to use the historical person and work of Adam, notice I said historical, to point believers to Jesus Christ as the second and the last Adam. He is a type. That's why I I emboldened it there for us. He's a portrait. So as we're gripped with the gravity of Adam's responsibility and his failure, we should be driven to look forward to the greater reality of what Christ has done and his successful work. Now, as we look at this Eden as the temple of God, we're going to note four temple characteristics that point us to Jesus Christ. So after each one of these characteristics, I want to meditate on... Christ And what the New Testament says about Jesus Christ. The first characteristic of this uh, Eden that serves as a temple was that it signaled God's unique presence. In Genesis 3.8, you just have the statement there in your your handout. We don't have time to look at every text here, but Genesis 3.8 describes God as walking in the garden. Just as God walked among the Israelites in His tabernacle dwelling. Now I've got the text written out for me. You probably don't have time to go there. Maybe you do. If you can jump ahead and and grab uh, 2 Samuel 7, 6. But I'm going to read these three texts to you. And what you find is that connected with the tabernacle is the emphasis of God walking in a tent. It's underlining His presence. Leviticus twenty-six, eleven through twelve. God says, "I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people." One of the characteristics, distinct characteristics of God's uh, covenant with His people, is that He would be with them; they would be His people; He would be their God. And the, the picture of Him walking among His people identifies His unique presence. So there's no accident in Genesis 3.8 when we find God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve and engaging them. In Deuteronomy 23.14, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. In 2 Samuel 7.6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about, literally walking in a tent from my dwelling. So thus, just as God portrayed His presence among His people in His tabernacle dwelling, so God portrayed His presence among Adam and Eve in the garden, walking among them, walking in fellowship with them. As we're going to see, sin breached that, and they're cast out of the presence of God. And so God reestablishes His presence through these covenant promises that He will establish a seed in Genesis 3.15. And his promised to Abraham that there would be a seed would come and his promise to David there would be a seed and so we see Adam and Eve losing the presence of God through sin but God reengaging it through the promise of redemption it is no accident then in, in when we look to Christ and we consider God's presence among his people John 1 14 tells us that Jesus tabernacled, tented, dwelt among us in Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Jesus, after saying that he has authority over heaven and earth, that's creation talk. The garden should take us back to God's creation, the heavens and the earth. Jesus says, I have authority, the heavens and the earth. He says, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Revelation 2, 1, we are introduced to Jesus Christ who walks among the seven golden lampstands underlining His priestly presence among His church. These are not accidents. There's threads that run us through Scripture scripture underlining the presence of God, particularly in His Son, in Jesus Christ. So we see the Edenic Temple underlining God's unique presence. Page 3. It also underlined God's unique creation authority. And here, it's interesting when you overlay creation and the tabernacle, both are laid out with seven speeches. You see on day one, that in Psalm 104, verse 2, the heavens are stretched out like a, a curtain. But when we see uh, Moses giving the speech with regard to the tent, we see the tent laid out. In the first speech, in Exodus 26, verse 7. So the heavens are compared to a tent, like a curtain being laid out. We see in Exodus 26, 7, the first speech, the tabernacle addressed as a tent. The firmament in Genesis 1, 2, on uh, day 2. The temple veil in Exodus 26, verse 33. Again, the firmament being the sky, separating, being a visible separation between us and God, representative of our uh, separation between the transcendent God and uh, creatures. And we find in Exodus 26:33, the temple has a veil separating people from the presence of God. In day three, the waters below are gathered below the firmament. And we find in Exodus 30 verse 18, in the third speech, uh, the laver or the bronze sea. On day four, Genesis 1:14, God establishes the luminaries, the lights. In Exodus 25:31, we have another speech, the light stand. We have birds in Genesis 1:20, winged cherubim in Exodus 25:20. Man is created on Genesis 1, 27. Aaron, the high priest, is, is set apart in Exodus 28, verse 1. On day 7, we have the cessation of creation, Genesis 2, 1. And we have the cessation of the uh, tabernacle activities in Exodus 39, 32. Blessing, Genesis 2, 3. Mosaic blessing, Exodus 39, 43. And completion, Genesis 2:2, And Exodus 39, 43, completion. I'm not going to read it to you, but there is a number of rabbis of old. You can find it in the Midrash Rabbah, Numbers 12, 13. It's an ancient Jewish rabbinical homiletic interpretation. So it's a preaching compilation of the, the book of Numbers. And many, many, many years ago addressed this unique pattern between the tabernacle, the seven speeches, and the days that the Lord created, the heavens and the earth, and his speeches. Again... Just noting the similarity between Eden and the tabernacle is a connection. Moving on. How does this point to Christ? Well, I want to draw attention here to the Sabbath day. Because I think the Sabbath day is a unique connection between the tabernacle and between creation, between Eden. The Sabbath served as a connection between the administration of Israel and the administration of Adam, according to Exodus 20, 10-11. For the people of Israel were commanded to devote the seventh day, the Sabbath day, to the Lord in rest. For, the text tells us, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, a sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the sab- Sabbath day and made it holy. So we find the Sabbath day, the seventh day being set apart, in light of creation. We find when Israel... Uh, is set apart and the tabernacle is instituted. In Exodus 20, the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments are given. And the Sabbath day is recognized, going back to the creation event. Is it an accident that Hebrews 3, 14, through chapter 14, verse 16, says that the entrance of rest in Christ through faith in the gospel is the ultimate Sabbath day? So Eden, God gave Adam mandates establishes a seventh day rest that he was to enter into. The tabernacle, Israel's responsibility before God in light of the Mosaic covenant, seventh day rest. What is the portrayal? What's the picture pointing to ultimate rest in Jesus Christ? How does Hebrews connect the dot? When we enter that rest, we give up on our works. We realize that our we cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot work our way to God. As we rest in the promises of what Jesus Christ has done to fulfill the work, to accomplish the work of the law, we find rest and we enter the Sabbath rest of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Christ can say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, New Testament lenses, right? Through the New Covenant. We're able to look at these things and go, wow, I need portrayals, these inventions, if you will, that keep pointing me to my Redeemer. Three, an edemic an Edenic temple that signaled God's unique holiness. God's unique holiness. Now, it is no accident that two cherubim are placed um, on the east side of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. We find throughout Scripture that the cherubim were portrayed as guards of God's holiness, if you will, protecting man from the holiness of God. They would strike man dead if they dared approach the holiness of God. So in Genesis 3.24, if you remember the account, two cherubim are positioned outside the east entrance of the gate. When we look at the uh, t- temple of Solomon, in 1 Kings 6.23-28, through 28, Solomon built a 10-foot tall and 10-foot wide um, cherubim, two of them, and they stood there as guards in the inner sanctuary of Solomon's temple. Two golden cherubim sit on the top of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, portraying the holiness of God, depicting the very throne of God in Exodus 25, 18 through 22. Furthermore, two cherubim were imprinted on the curtains of the tabernacle on the walls of the temple in Exodus 26:31 and 1 Kings 6:29. Cherubim, guarding, if you will, man from entering the presence of God and invading the very holiness of God. What's so intriguing is in Ezekiel 28:14. Ezekiel describes the king of Tyre as an anointed cherub placed on the holy mountain of God to walk about. In Ezekiel 28, he describes the holy mountain of God as Eden, connecting this, this cherub back to the garden of Eden. Go to Revelation 4, 6-8 if you would. Let's take a moment to look at some more texts. Revelation 4, 6-8. And then, uh, if you'd go to Ezekiel, Uh, as you're looking there, I'm deciding on whether we want to do Ezekiel 1 or 10. Well, here's what we'll do. Ezekiel chapter 1 describes these same living creatures around the throne of God that we see in Romans 4. But when we get to Ezekiel 10, he describes the living creatures as cherubim. Ezekiel chapter 10. So that's where I'm going to have you go. Ezekiel 10. And Revelation chapter 4. I'll let you take a moment to, to get there. We'll start with Revelation 4. And we'll start in verse 7. Now, Revelation 4 doesn't call them cherubim. He calls them living the four living creatures. And it gives a description of the face of a man, um, an ox, an eagle. It's Ezekiel that connects these living creatures to the title cherubim. That's why we'll need Ezekiel 10. So we know these are cherubim. And where are they positioned? Well, before the throne room of God. Verse 7, The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we find these four living creatures that Ezekiel connects to cherubim, they're in the presence of God, and what is their ministry? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, standing before the presence of, of God, day and night, they never cease to say. And i love to point out that I, I don't think they're getting bored of the repetition They are so amazed and delighted by the holiness of God that each new expression has been an expression of the delight in the glory of God as they witness it. They're drinking Him in and praising Him, if you will, as much as they can as created beings. I think that's what their wings are for as well, cover their faces. intensity of the glory of God. Now, I, I take it, as other commentators do, that these 24 elders are not a, a metaphor of the church. I, I don't place the church here in the 24 elders. I don't uh, um, make this a symbol of the church, as, as some do. In Isaiah 24, you'll see them gathered with angels um, in, in God's presence. So I take them, the 24 elders, as angels, and they are representing the dominion and power of God. And that's what they're, they're crying out. But I ask you then, where are the saints, if you buy my opinion here? Where are the saints? Well, you find them in chapter 5. And you find them with the Lamb. You see, because the saints are missing in chapter 4, as we're dealing with the holiness of God and the the cherubim, proclaiming His holiness, and the 24 elders, angels, I believe, proclaiming His power and His glory. How could saints ever dare, sinners ever have dare have entrance into the holiness of God? Well, it's because of the Lamb. And so in Revelation chapter 5, we're introduced to the the theme of the Lamb. And in verse 8, we see these 24 elders now falling down before the Lamb. And I love that because here they were worshiping God, declaring His power. They're falling down before the Lamb, worshiping Him. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So You see the contrast to the saints and they sang a new song saying, Were there you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The reason the saints can have access to God is because of the Lamb who has redeemed them. And the cherubim are a vivid reminder of the holiness of God as the cherubim who, who, who uh, stood as guards of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out. The cherubim were a reminder of God's holiness. And by the way, the cherubim play a, a critical part when, in the temple of Israel in Ezekiel 10. So go ahead and go there. In Ezekiel 10, they have Israel has abandoned God. They are worshiping idols. And we see the glory of God leaving the temple. And who do we find there? We find cherubim of all things. They're representatives of God's glory. And again, if you want a a, a mind-boggling description of the cherubim, you'll find in Ezekiel 1, (laughs) the description of these living beings. Verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the threshold of the house, stood over the cherubim. So we've got the glory of the Lord. It's abandoning the temple. It's going to the east, by the way, just as uh, the movement of uh, uh, the cherubim standing there before the east of the Garden of Eden. So we see the glory of God moving to the east and the glory of the Lord stood over the cherubim that's a picture of the mercy seat that's the Ark of the Covenant and you had the cherubim hovering over the Ark of the Covenant so the glory of the Lord was to be seen as the invisible presence of God even above the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant that's why you have the glory cloud moving in the tabernacle confronting the people of Israel times when they wanted to stone Moses they saw his pervasive glory in the tabernacle hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim represented there. Verse 19, And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. What wheels? Well, you got to go to chapter 1 for that. That's how we know these are cherubim. That's how we can connect it to Revelation 4. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. Is that an accident that the Garden of Eden, they're set at the east entrance? And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. What we're connecting is that the Garden of Eden then is seen as a temple of the Lord. Adam had a responsibility um, as a type of Christ, as a priest, to represent uh, the people. What people? The people he used to be fruitful and multiply, to have. And when he broke God's law and refused to obey Him by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he was cast out. And so we were cast out as well. God raised up Israel to continue giving these living portraits of our need for Jesus Christ. So we're arguing that the Eden is a representative of the temple of the Lord. Page 4. But this too points to Christ. For it was through Christ's work to say it is finished that the veil in the heavenly temple was removed and symbolically the veil in the earthly temple was torn. John Fesco notes that when the veil was torn, the cherubim were removed. And that's why we find them in Revelation 4 around the throne of God. Praise God. Symbols of our separation from God and through Christ's finished work it removes those symbols. Jesus is said to be the ultimate temple. In John two nineteen through 22 Christ connected the destruction and resurrection of His body with the temple at Jerusalem. When we pan through the pages of Scripture and we look at Revelation 21, we find this connection in the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We find that Christ is the ultimate temple. So Eden and the tabernacle pointing to Jesus Christ. Again, it's the Holy Spirit's lens saying, "Look, I painted it for you. Look at the brushstrokes throughout redemptive history." We find in Ephesians 2:19 through 22 that Paul describes the church in terms of members of the household of God. Verse 19, a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 21, and a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 22. Peter catches this theme and describes the saints in terms of temple service. You yourselves, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Portrayals. We don't want to just get lost at the picture. We want to look at its meaning. We want our hearts to burn, minds to be open to see Christ and His glory. Fourthly, As we wrap up the portrayal of Eden as a temple, it signaled God's exalted position. Eden is represented as the mountain of God. In Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16, Eden is called the garden of God in verse 13 and the holy mountain of God in verses 14 and 16. Secondly, Eden is the source of a living river. Genesis 2.10 describes a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And when we look at Ezekiel, he receives a vision of God's temple. He describes it as a river flowing from the temple to provide healing. It's no accident that the psalmist says this in Psalm 46.4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In Revelation 22.1, we see a description of the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Eden, the temple of God. It's exalted as the mountain of God, as the source of water. The New Testament, the Old Testament, pick up on and continue to describe. It is like a stream, I think, if you want to describe it like a stream that comes out of the Garden of Eden using the river maybe as an analogy, a symbol, and begins to grow and make its way through the tabernacle representation and the temple representation. Ezekiel's description of the future. And then finally, find its way into Christ's own statements that he is the water of life. And then we see the great depictions of the water of life in the new heavens and the new earth. I want to read scripture with this thread in mind. Thirdly, it's the location of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. So two particular trees stand out in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We find an interesting connection between the law of God and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. According to Psalm 19, 8 through 9, the law of God makes the simple wise and enlightens the eyes. It's no accident that that's picking up on the the statement of the knowledge of good and evil would enlighten their eyes. The law is seen with that description. The law of God was placed in the Ark of the Covenant located in the Holy of Holies. And just as Adam and Eve were not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so the people of Israel were not to touch the ark. Scripture places God's law in the holy place, whether Eden, represented in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the tabernacle or the temple of God. So again, we see these threads. The tree of knowledge of good and evil a symbol of God's law. The day they ate of it or touched it, they would die transgressing God's law and therefore cast out. God replicated that in taking his law, the Ten Commandments, and placing the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, calling for obedience. And just as Adam failed, so Israel, representing Adam, failed too and was cast out. Out of the Promised Land, back into the wilderness, on their way to Babylon. The Tree of Life, we find that in the Garden of Eden. In Revelation 22, verse 2, we also find it in the Paradise of God. Page 5. How does it point to Christ? Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water in John 7. He offers himself as the water of life to the the Samaritan woman in John 4. Connecting with the, the, the river themes, the water themes. Connected to the tree of life, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Connecting to the law, he says he's come to fulfill the law, and connecting to the mountain of God, we are told in Hebrews 12:22 that we've come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. portrayals threading us to look to Christ, the ultimate goal and aim. Adam, the priest of God, so here's where we want to just capture this and then move on to the tabernacle quickly. <laughs> Adam, we're told, was a type of Christ. God placed Adam in the garden to work and keep it. Those two Hebrew words, avad, to work and keep, samar, are used to describe the priest's responsibilities in Numbers. Same words are used. Maybe translated to serve and to guard. Luther recognized this priestly call of Adam when he noted in his Genesis commentary that God built Adam a temple that he may worship him. So Adam, like the priests of Israel, Makes all the sense in the world then when we read Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they, the context would have us understand Ephraim and Judah, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. In Hosea 6-7, Adam is compared with the people of Israel who transgressed God's covenant. In Exodus 19:5 through 6 it tells us that Israel was called by God to be a kingdom of priests, to obey God's voice and keep God's covenant as a testimony to the peoples of all the earth. So just as Israel broke God's covenant as a kingdom of priests, so Adam rebelled against God's covenant as a representative priest. And yet it was this priestly service of Adam that pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who obeyed God's law fully and completely for his people's righteousness. I just note how amazing it is that God steps in and gives the promise of the seed in Genesis 3.15 and then casts Adam and Eve out into the wilderness to deal with thorns and thistles. To deal with moral corruption. Cain rises up and kills Abel. There's a wild world that they enter. And yet, Jesus Christ, what does he do? He steps into this sin-cursed world. After his identification by the Holy Spirit that this is the one, in the baptism with John, he then walks into the wilderness. The wilderness that Adam and Eve and we were cast into is the wilderness that Christ stepped into in order to face the devil and to go to the cross to deal with our sin. Scripture running us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate Adam, to bring us back to the paradise of God, the ultimate Eden. Number two, and this should go faster, and this is where I need the picture. The tabernacle Israel and Christ. Well, we built our text on Romans 5, noting that Adam was a type of Christ, In Isaiah 49.3, we have another text. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And we see this servant Israel is given as a covenant to the people. So just as Romans 5 gave us a, a typological relationship between Adam and Christ in Isaiah 49, we find that Christ is viewed by God in terms of the ultimate Israel, the representative Israel. And we're going to look at four characteristics of the temple service that point us to Jesus Christ and we may be amazed by Him, love and adore Him. Number one, the tabernacle represented the condescension of God to save His people. Now we already observed in John 1.14, and maybe it would be worth going there, since we haphazardly made reference to it. We need to see the tabernacle tent. In John 1.14, this term tabernacle is picked up. And applied to Christ in His incarnation. The Word became flesh It's the incarnation added to His eternal deity, humanity. The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacled would be another word. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, sinners could not approach God. The cherubim were a reminder of God's judgment Swords drawn against us in execution. So in order for sinners to be brought into the presence of God, God would need to come to us and enter the curse of the wilderness. He would have to tabernacle among us. And so we find in the tabernacle a portrayal of God's condescension in Jesus Christ. And this tabernacle is full of portraits that point to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So it's a representation that God condescends to save the tabernacles. He steps into our wilderness to save. The tabernacle, secondly, represented the presence of God in heaven. In Hebrews 8, 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, according to this text, it is a pattern, a copy that points to the heavenlies. To the heavenly things. How so? Well, that leads us to number three. It represented the separation between God and man, holiness and sin. It's amazing the detail the Lord put together here. Hebrews 9, 7 through 14, verses 8 and 9 particularly. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates. Again, this is the the new covenant lens. I'm arguing that Abraham had this lens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and Moses. And we're given it in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And so the veil separating uh, the people in the outer court from the holy place was a representation that the holy place was not opened. It was symbolic. It was a portrait, a picture He goes on, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the reality, heaven, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Hebrew writer uses the phrase holy places to describe the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is the holy place and the holy of holies symbolize the presence of God. So we can deduce from this that the outer court of the tabernacle symbolized the sin-cursed earth. For it is in the outer court that the people could enter and the priest would offer the guilt offering on the altar. So what we have here is the outer court where you have the brazen altar with the sacrifice. You see the little white there with the ramp. And then we have the, the laver of water, washing and cleansing. Those are in the outer court. The people could enter there. But they could not enter into the holy place. We find a veil that separates the Holy of Holies, the far um, the far end there, from the holy place, denoting the, the, even the distinction between heaven and God. Remember in 1 Kings 8, Solomon says that even the heavens cannot contain God, and so we're reminded that there is even a distinction between heaven and God himself. The furniture is distinct. The bronze character of the altar is a less expensive metal, but you move into the holy places and we have gold furniture. In contrast to the outer courts, the holy places have curtains woven in blue portraying the glory of heaven. Yet even the holy places are distinct. The very throne of God's presence in heaven is set apart. And here's what's so amazing. People were reminded again and again as they walked into the outer courts with their animal, identified with it by laying their hands, confessing sin, and only the priest could sacrifice it. It was a reminder that we could not approach God apart from a substitute sacrifice. It was also a reminder that God had to come to us. God had to condescend and break through. God had to step into the wilderness. In Christ, God would say, it is finished. We have full access to God. The tabernacle finally represented the work of Christ as the sinner's high priest. So let's look at these three compartments very briefly. The most holy place, let's start there, dealing with the the very presence of God. We find the law written and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Testimony of God's revelation. Christ is said to be the fulfillment of the law. The ark is picked up as God's throne. The cherubim, reminder of God's holiness. So just as the ark of the covenant moved out of the holy place and into the outer courts to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness across the Jordan and into the promised land, so Christ, the new covenant mediator, would descend from the presence of God into the wilderness to become a curse for us. He would represent his people. He would provide the true bread of life, the manna. He would fulfill the law of God. He would be the ultimate great high priest. I'd like to take you to Psalm 132. and I've left this off the handout, but this is an amazing connection between the ark and the son of David. And I would encourage you to think of that ark when you see it entering the Jordan River and crossing the wilderness and entering the promised land that we have there a portrayal of the son of David, Jesus Christ, as he entered the wilderness, conquered sin, and led us through the resurrection. Psalm 132, verse 8. Okay, verse 7. Let's start there. Verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. For this reason, many scholars have looked at the Ark of the Covenant as a footstool. Or uh, God's... um, Feet rested, so to speak, using, uh, metaphorical terms to describe God who is immaterial and invisible. Verse 8. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This is picked up in Numbers. Moses would say, A Lord, arise when the ark of the covenant would move out, and Lord, rest among your people when the ark of the covenant would be at rest again. So again, he's describing the ark of the covenant. Verse 9, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And notice the connection. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. To promise, the son of David, who would come. Look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. You see the connection? The Ark of the Covenant at rest. And we find in verse 12 through 14, he moves to the Son of David and describes God resting among his people. We're meant to see, even in the Ark of the Covenant, the gracious condescension of God to step among his people and to fulfill the law and provide life second uh, compartment is the holy place the holy place and there we find in it if you could see there in the uh, second compartment the lampstand it was um, called a menorah looked like a, a golden tree with branches buds and almond flowers many scholars have connected that to the tree of life in the garden of eden but it was jesus who said i am the light of the world we see also the bread of the presence. Anytime a covenant was made, there was a fellowship meal displaying communion and fellowship between God and his people. And so we have 12 loaves of bread that the priests were to eat of representing the people of Israel and their fellowship with God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. We find there also the altar of incense. You what on page 8? The altar of incense was in that holy place. New Testament connects the altar of incense to the prayers of the saints. Now the holy place and its furniture and provisions remind us of the blessings that would be provided through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The life of God represented in the lampstand, communion with God, the bread, and acceptance with God, the incense, all draw on themes of fellowship and communion through symbols that convey union. So you think of the incense breathed in, the sense of smell, there's pleasure. The bread, eaten, digested. There's a union with the bread. And then also the lampstand, the eye gates. Christ connects himself to each one of these. It is through him that we have access to God. He is a fragrant aroma to God. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. It's through Christ that we have fellowship with God. Lastly, the outer court. And there we have the basin, wash basin, and the bronze altar. And many have noted that the way it was set up, was a portrayal of what God did with Israel. We have first you enter the outer court and you hit, hit the bronze altar and sacrifice needs to be made and then through that, cleansing. And we see again Moses or Israel brought out of Egypt through redemption, pictured in the sacrifice, the lamb, and then through the Red Sea, just as you find the laven water and cleansing. And then again you have Moses sinning at Mount Sinai uh, through idolatry. Uh, they are brought through the wilderness Uh, and through the Jordan River. Constant themes. Jesus Christ went to the cross and was resurrected. And we find in that resurrection, cleansing. The confessing sinner would bring an animal without defect to the priest. He would lay his hands on the animal signifying he identified with it. He would kill the animal at the entrance of the courtyard, signifying the substitute character of the sacrifice and embracing that as his substitute. But the priest would represent the sinner to God, not the sinner. The sinner confessed sin and identified with the sacrifice. The priest took some of the blood, sprinkled it on the sides of the altar and the horns of the altar of incense. And on the day of atonement, the priest brought blood into the most holy place, sprinkled the cover to make atonement for the people. The blood was used to sprinkle the curtain separating the rooms, the horns of the altar, of both the altar of incense and the bronze sacrificial altar, reminding everyone of the uncleanness of sins. The horns are sprinkled closest to heaven and the sides of the altar sprinkled closest to earth. It was a reminder the whole of creation groans under the guilt and bondage of our sin. Our sin has reached to heaven. That is why our Lord Jesus, so gracious, out of love, stepped into the outer courts, to offer himself as the sacrifice so that we could approach God. When he said it was finished, the veil was torn in two. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, you, brothers and sisters, can come to a throne of grace with boldness and confidence, not afraid of cherubim standing in the way, not afraid to meet a holy God of judgment, but a God of love that we come through Jesus Christ because our sins have been paid for and cleansed. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word that we would be amazed by these portrayals and gripped with our sinfulness in order that we, as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. When we are gripped with our sin, we are reminded of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you that Christ so graciously added humanity to his divinity to save us, to enter the wilderness, to deal with the devil, to deal with our sin, to deal with the world, and to bring us to you, God. So we thank you. May you raise our hearts to consider these things and to worship you as our Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend. Oh, that we can call you our friend, our Father. We praise you in Christ's name, amen.